0: The same story that your life maybe wasn't saturated with communion and prayer toward God, but things have changed, and it's the same here in the life of Jacob. Dear Father, this morning, Lord, we come. Lord, we learn. We sit at your feet. Lord, we're told that there is only one way to heaven, and it is through your Son. We're told that there is no other way to climb those stairs. There is no way that we could ascend. But Lord, you have condescend to us. And Lord, we praise you and thank you together, now as a church, to worship you and say you're worthy. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace and your tender care toward us. You have kept us. You will keep us. And you will never let us go. You will always be with us, for us, in Christ. Lord, we lift up prayer concerns, the things that we have, Lord. We praise you and thank you for answers. We thank you for your fellowship and your peace to be upon us, Lord. But we regularly come to bring our concerns. Lord, we lift up Norm guide to you, Lord. We pray for his body and his health and his strength with the blood transfusion, Lord. We lift up Dwayne before you, Lord, with his eyes, strengthening through decreased eye pressure. Lord, we have many things that set us apart. Lord, we lift up Rick, Lord, with the procedure he had, with his hernia. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, Minister to our minds, Lord, and teach us how to love one another. Lord, we are in a prime location now to love one another, to fulfill all the one another's that you've given us, to forgive one another, to be slow to anger with one another, to try to outdo one another in showing good and honor. Lord, that this would be your praise, that this would be a soothing aroma, a beautiful fragrance to you as so it wafted up from this church, Lord. Lord, we ask you to do this in and among us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in his redemption. Lord, we know that we track in sins this morning. As Mike was saying, Father, it has been six days. Lord, there are things. There are problems. Our mind is not at peace. But here now, we lay it before you. Promptly and sincerely, Lord, we give you our lives again. Open our hearts. Examine us. Look to us, Lord. Tend to us. Cleanse us. Make us strong. Make us mature. Make us resilient. We're told to stand firm in all your armor. And having done everything to stand, therefore we will stand. You will hold our feet. You have given us the gospel. You have given us the shield. You have given us this helmet of salvation, knowing that your good is always poured out upon our head. Lord, we remember Jacob as he was blaspheming you, lying in your name. You were pouring blessings upon his head the same. Lord, we thank you for your grace, because apart from this, we would have no hope. So Lord, please open up your word to us this morning and let us worship your son in all his glory. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Let our hearts be filled with his love. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Here is uh, Genesis 28. You'll remember Jacob is a man of prayer and uh, the first story we had an encounter with him last week, there was no prayer at all. There was really nothing going on between him and the Lord. It was just him trying to manipulate his way to try to achieve some type of blessing from his father. And he tricked his father, got the blessing that was supposed to go to his brother. And his brother was very angry about that. If you ever know about sibling rivalries, that can happen sometimes. And he's very angry, wanted to kill him. And so Jacob in this portion is leaving. He's fleeing from his homeland. In Genesis 28, his father just uh, released him at the beginning of the chapter. He sent him up to the north, this area called Padan Aram. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran, which is up north in the same region of that other place I just mentioned, Paddan Aram. Many miles up north, away from everything. And he came to a certain place and we're told that he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and laid it down in that place to sleep. And then we're told that he dreamed a dream. And behold, there was a ladder, and said upon it, it was on the earth, and the top reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you, until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar And poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will give and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And then lastly it says, And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. A full tenth of everything that Jacob could possess or own. He vows, he promises before God to give back. This is the beginning of what we could say is Jacob's, spiritual life. He grew up in a, you say, Christian home. That is a home with promises of covenants from God. He knew something about what was promised to his grandfather, Abraham. He knew something about what was promised to his father, Isaac. And that's about it. And he knew it was a good thing. And he wanted it. So he had some type of faith about it. But he went about it, of course, just by manipulating and ruining his brother to try to get ahead, to try to get something He wanted the prosperity gospel. He wanted it. He was willing to take it. But this is the first time in his life in which God touches him. This is the first time we're told in which God reveals himself as the living true God of Israel that he is. And it was through a dream. We're told that the Lord stood above a stairway it says here a ladder, but really should be the concept of actual stairs. He condescended to meet Jacob. He revealed himself to Jacob. Jacob is not seeking God here. He's seeking to run away from his brother. And he's seeking to just sleep. He is not the one looking for God. He's fleeing. And he's out of his element. He's uncomfortable. For lack of so many words, Jacob was kind of like a mama's boy, and and he is gone. His home, his mother is not there. He has no land. He has no inheritance. He has no home, and he has no pillow. You could say he is at rock bottom, to coin the phrase, right? When people usually, if we were to go around this room, right, and to actually What are your testimony? What is your testimony of Christ? Well, it went like this, and then it went like this, and then there was this point in my life where this happened. This happened to me. And I lost all of my self-righteousness and worth. I lost all of everything that I was confident in. I felt broken, dejected. I felt like I was at rock bottom. And there could be extreme versions of that for us, and maybe mild versions of that for us, depending on the kind of life that God has given you. But there will be something in which you realize you are dust. And you have nothing. And for Jacob to be taken away as a precious boy from his mother. To have no home. The inheritance, the birthright that he tried to steal from his brother. Now he can't even live in the land, let alone inherit it. And all the blessings that were supposed to come his way. He's resting his head on a rock and has nothing to his name. And you and I, if you know Christ, know this is the time when God says, let's spread the heavens a little bit. Let me put that cloud over here. Let me put that cloud over here and let me grab you by the ears and show you myself now that you have no more idols. Now that you have nothing left. And you can be brought there without actually losing everything. Some of us, if God is going to deal with the more stubborn, will take it all away. And here he has found a very stubborn, manipulative man who does not want God or is seeking him. And that is the beauty of his love and salvation toward us. What is your testimony of experiencing God? There is a famous psychologist who's almost the father of modern psychology named William James. He wrote a book at the beginning of the 20th century called A Variety of Religious Experiences. He surveyed, it's an amazing book. Um, I was, I don't know, with Heather somewhere in Barnes & Noble and we had time and I picked it up and read a few pages. And I was like, wow, I really need to read that book. And I haven't yet. But I can remember enough to use it as a sermon illustration. (laughs) There is, like the few pages I read, I still remember. It was years ago when I picked it up. He surveyed all of these religious experiences um, throughout the world at the beginning 100 years from now, over 100 years ago. And of course, people have done much more of this, but he was the first to really look at it. And he said, here's the deal. I'm interested as, as a Harvard psychologist, why does everyone seem to have these religious experiences? How do I make sense of this? And so, of course, he went through Christianity, and uh, he he talked to a lot of Methodists and Baptists and their conversion story and what happened to them. They felt dejected. They felt not um, to be in a bad place, and they had to turn to Christ for solution. But he also went to the mystics. He talked to those from Islam. He talked to people in Hinduism, Buddhism. He catalogs them all in this book, this experience. He puts them all in a rubric and says, people have experiences of God. Okay, that's a fact. That doesn't help much, though, he says, because all of experience is, is an experience. So your experience can't control me, and my experience can't control you. What am I to say with the intuitions between my ears? How is that obligatory upon you in any way? So testimony is interesting. It's valuable, uniquely valuable personally, but it doesn't go much more past that. But the one thing I remember reading which I, I have a habit of when there's nothing going on, I end up reading something and did, get disconnected from the present situation. So Heather would like, found me, and she was like, hey, stop reading, we're leaving. And that's usually how conversations usually go. Um, finally, but I did get enough to read this, and he said something remarkable. He said, psychological realities are realities. And you're like, well, yeah, kind of. Right? What's so wrong about? He said, if someone had a mind thought, an intuition, an experience, in some sense it has to be really real because it was a real experience. You're like, so think about this. If you're thinking of a unicorn, that unicorn really exists as far as your experiences are real. But of course we know in the real world it doesn't apply to anything. But in a real sense, that unicorn really exists in the ideas of your mind. Now, the problem with all of Western thought and history and religion is, so what? So what if you believe that Yahweh is God? That's inside your mind. How is that consequential for anyone else? And this is where people say you have a flying spaghetti monster. Well, you have... So what if you believe that there is a flying spaghetti monster? So what if you believe there is a unicorn? It's real for you in your mind. And then the modern world cuts that off and says, and you must go no further. You must not actually say that Jesus is Lord just because you have had experience of his lordship. And then as Christians, we say, I will... Take one more step, and I will cross that line. This is what we have with the story of Jacob. There's two oddities that are treated as realities with Jacob. The one was last week, his father spoke a blessing over him. And us as modern people would say, so what? I mean, it was the most bizarre story, if you remember. His father thinks he's blessing his eldest brother, Esau. And he blesses Jacob instead. And when he realizes that he did not bless Esau, that he was tricked, he began to tremble. And he was emotionally distraught over the matter. That his words fell upon someone else's head. And as moderns, we say, well, just take your words back. They're just words. And you say, if, the, if you didn't mean to bless him, then take your blessing back. Roll it back up. It's just a word. It's just something you spoke. And what's so interesting about the story is that's never even a thought. That blessing went out. That blessing was real. It landed on his head, and it is on his head it will be. Jacob's, Isaac's closing words at the end of it were, I have blessed him, yes, and he will be blessed. And now the second oddity, If it wasn't some blessing spoken by a man on his deathbed, now we have Jacob having a dream. But the odd thing about all of this is, it's just a dream. Right? I mean, if we all were to raise our hands and say, yes, a dream. I try not to base my life off dreams very often. Can you imagine? Right? Dreams. (laughs) Not every dream is a theophany. Not every dream is God breaking in to your reality. Most dreams are me just trying to run away from somebody. Just because I had a dream that I was falling doesn't mean I'm going to base my life upon it and start jumping off buildings or think I could fly. What is it here? Why is this oddity of just a dream treated as the most consequential, significant thing that at the end he says, "'You will be my God.'" Every penny that ever passes through my fingers, one-tenth of it will always go to you out of a dream. Because what happened between his ears, his spiritual religious experience, has done the very thing that annoys everybody about Christianity, about the gospel, is that we say, Jesus is Lord because he revealed himself to me. Therefore, fall on your knees and bow to him. And that is offensive. Why should your personal experience of the divine be obligatory or definitive or normative for the world? Who do you think you are? And so here's the question I posed to you this morning before Jacob. Why are we here? Does our presence before this text and my preaching of it imply that his dreams in some way should be our dreams? the answer to that is, yes. This is not just any dream. Here is the word of God. He has encountered the true and living God, mediated through a dream. Perhaps God has revealed himself to you, mediated through a sermon. Mediated through a friend sitting at a coffee bar. Mediated through a song. Mediated through a movie. I know some was converted by watching Jesus of Nazareth movie made by Hollywood to make money. Mostly by non-Christians. And God said, I'll use that. The pathway in which God presses upon the soul is not as important a fact that it is the one true God pressing upon the soul. And here it is a dream. And in Scripture, theophanies, encounters with the living God, are usually likened to thunder, an explosive point, an experiential point in someone's life. Psalm 18 says it this way, The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High utters His voice. The Lord thunders in the heavens. When his word goes out, when he expresses or explains himself, it's as though it's like thunder. It's not as though like the person next to you hearing the sermon is bored and you hearing it are like, this is the word of God. There's an internal thunder happening. There's something God is impressing upon you. Revelation 4 says, Out from his throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. When God reveals himself, thunder claps. There is a very large, explosive, alarming, jarring expression of the natural order quaking in the presence of God. We all experience this thunder in some way. You can see why this image is so vivid. Because if you've ever been through a normal summer evening, where everything's going great and you're playing with uh, the kids maybe in the park or something, and then the cool breeze comes through. And then the dark clouds waft in. And all of a sudden, you don't know exactly where the storm came from. but it's right above you. And if you ever had thunder clap right above your head, it is jarring. It reverberates through your chest. Makes you pause for a second. It makes your heart actually start beating faster. When you really hear, do you remember that experience we have all must have had? When you hear that thunder, just boom, as if God clapped his hands right above your head it stops you. It reverberates through your bones, that sound, that shock wave. And that is why we are saying this experience that Jacob had is much more than a personal experience. This experience that he had is kind of like a very large thunderclap that we all cannot ignore. And there's reasons for that. The encountered genuine experience, and I'd like us to consider this morning, if you have experienced the true living God, and you have not had some um, arbitrary or um, ambivalent or bizarre experience with another spirit, a demon, your own psychological imaginations, there are other things out there. How do you know what is your spiritual experience? How do you know... Here, we see with Jacob's experience with God, it results in a resonating sound. It resonates through his emotions, his faith, his worship. It resonates through the plan of redemption. It resonates again through his emotions, his faith, his worship, and it resonates through redemption. These are the ways that we can say that your experience with God is real, and it is definitive, it is larger than yourself. Just like Jacob's dream, unlike all the other dreams he might have had in his life, this is the one recorded for us in Scripture, because this is one that is obligatory for the nations, wrapped within the promise, is the promise to the nations. And how do we know that it's more than just the one between his ears? Here is how. It resonates with his emotions. If you've experienced God everywhere throughout Scripture, you will see that anyone who has come in the presence of the living of God has immediate emotional reactions. It, it, the idea that we should not have emotions, like Mike said, emotions are amazing, wonderful. God made us with those. Now bring them and conform them to the truth of God. But you must have them. It is impossible to be in the presence of a living God and not be emotional. If you are here on a Sunday morning, if we are worshipping together and we are not emotionally invested in what we are doing, dare we say God even is not among us. Corinthians 14, Paul's word was, when an unbeliever comes into your assembly and you are worshipping... He will fall on his face and say, surely, God is among you. There will be an emotional reality of God's presence. And here with Jacob, exactly on par. It says that he was afraid. He was afraid of God. Yet also, not petrified fear, intriguing fear. He is afraid like a thunder. He's afraid like a storm. Where you have to stop and look at the thing. And not want to run away so quick before you have to run away. Because it's a big storm. But you pause and say, that is a beautiful tornado. (laughs) These people chase tornadoes. They're beautiful. They're dangerous. They make you afraid. But he was not only afraid. He said, how awesome is this place. He was afraid, but yet awestruck. Taken in by love. This is the emotion that we should have. If you've experienced God, you know this emotion. It also results in real faith. The real faith that came to Jacob. This is in his life where he surely says this. Surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place. Surely. There's something of a spiritual experience which God opens the heavens. And then you have this resolution to say, Jesus Christ is God. I know this. I believe this to the bottom of my bones. Surely, full conviction, faith is formed in him that way because God exposed himself to him and faith followed. And what followed with his faith is immediately keeping a vow. He puts a vow out before the Lord almost immediately. If God, he says, will keep me, He will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, and returns me back to this land that I should have. If he does these things in his faith, he makes a pure confession and says, the Lord, Yahweh, shall be my God. And many have tried to say that, well, this vow, why is Jacob trying to manipulate God in some way or try to be self-serving or self-seeking? He's always making these vows about his good, his food, his health, his land. No, no, no. He's vowing exactly on the lines of the promises that were given. He is vowing or making a covenant, making a pact, making an agreement with God based on the terms offered to him. He really believes this is true. Therefore, because God offered him life, land, and a lineage right there in the dream. He wakes up from the dream and says, Lord, if you will give me and sustain my life, if you will give me back this land, if you will give me this lineage that goes to the north, south, east, and the west, Then therefore you will be my God. For you are true. He is testing God. And you're allowed to test God. He's testing God on God's own testing standards. Because he believes. He has real faith now. This is the same thing for you and I in the gospel. The promise is this. Jesus offers you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you believe the gospel, you say, Lord... If you will keep me, Lord Jesus, then you will be my God. Do you believe that gospel? For he promises, I will pass over all of your sins. I will cleanse you. You will be clean as white as snow. And if you believe that, then you say, Lord, if you will cleanse me, Lord Jesus, then you will be my God. And he offers you complete righteousness. I will declare you just and holy and good. And I will exalt you and clothe you in white robes and honor. And if you believe that gospel that he offers you, then you say, Lord, if you will give me these robes, then Lord Jesus, you will be my God. I will serve you. This is true faith. This is the gospel that was given to us. His real experience of God results lastly in resulting in real worship. Notice how, when he had this encounter with the living God, what it did to his life immediately. He pledged allegiance, the Lord shall be my God. He understands we must serve a God. He understands more than the ancient world that we must serve any God. For the reality is, many of us don't think we have to serve a God in the secular age. We have to serve a God. We serve the God of scientism or hedonism or something, but you have to serve a God. And here is Jacob saying, the Lord will be my God. And it results in real worship. He wakes up immediately and he takes that stone that was underneath his head and he takes it and props it up in a vertical fashion as a pillar, which is the beginning of a whole cult of worship, an object to start worship. The result of that encounter with God produced real worship. It resonates. Now, if you have experienced the true living God, you will never stop worshiping Him. He changes you down to your soul. And the next day you wake up, just as with Jacob, you cannot not think about the Lord Jesus. You will know Him. He will not let you go. He said He will keep you. He will hold your mind Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, year one, two, and three. He will not let you go, and you will end up worshiping him. You will end up having your knees bow before him. That's how you know your religious experience, your spiritual encounter was of Yahweh. You encountered the real God. That's the reality in which it plays out. And it's the same for Jacob. And he says this, it results in real worship, so much so that he brings in the tithe. He says, All that you give me, I will give one-tenth. Real worship. That is, worship acknowledging that everything he has has been given to him by God, and one-tenth is given out as a representation of that part. That he would say, it is all to you. We would say, well, the tithe was a thing that came with the law of Moses in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and we're New Testament. But the reality is, Jacob isn't even in the law of Moses. Moses isn't even alive yet. He's giving out this money. He's giving out his treasures. He's giving it out to build the kingdom of God, which is real worship. Worship builds things. Worship invests value. The kingdom of God does not run on cotton candy. He took a stone and he vowed to the Lord, I will make this stone a palace. I will make this stone the house of God. Well, it takes more than one stone to make a temple. It takes more than one stone to make a palace. So right after he takes that stone and lifts it up, one-tenth of all my wealth will go to you, to building this kingdom for you, to building worship for you. David said, I would not worship the Lord if it didn't cost me anything. It has to cost me something. That's real worship, ascribing actual worthyship, value to God. And that transformed Jacob immediately in one dream. A man who was always conniving to get ahead, to beat his brother, to get more land and wealth and property. He encounters the living God and one-tenth of it goes away out of pleasure and joy and delight because he knows the real God. This is a real experience of Yahweh. His fingers have opened up and he's letting go of his idols. And it's ascribing worth and honor and riches and praise to the glory of Jesus yet to come. This resonates in all these ways. If you resonate with this experience and the attenuating results, then I dare say you've met God. You know Yahweh, the one of old. And the last one of it all is this resonating with redemption. God introduces himself to Jacob in a unique way. He says this. He says, I am the Lord. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. That is, there's a plan, a story of redemption that this dream, this experience matches. This is not just one random experience. Abraham's experience is that God promised him land, name, blessing, and family. And in this dream, God promised Jacob land, name, blessing, and family. Abraham, in Genesis 13, was in the exact place that Jacob laid his head, in Bethel. And while at Bethel, God told him to go to a high place on top of a high mountain and look everywhere he could see. And God promised him and said, everywhere you can see to the north, the south, the east, and the west will be yours. Two generations later, he takes up Jacob right there at Bethel. And he promises them, everything here, your descendants forever will spread to the north, the south, the east, and the west. See, the reason we as Christians say, I have encountered the living God, therefore you must bow your knees, is because our encounter is not within ourselves. Our encounter resonates with the whole redemptive plan of God, which is objective, which is historical, which is authenticated, falsified or verified based on a whole lineage of experiences and promises that could be wrong. But they're not wrong. All these vows that Jacob made could have not happened. He set the stone as a stone of remembrance to say, if Lord you bring me back to the stone that I poured oil on, that's sitting up tall and Um, like a pillar so I can see it when I come back. I will remember the stone. I will come back to this place. Lord, if you do not bring me back to this anointed stone, then you are not God. You are a liar. Your promises aren't true. His subjective experiences found objective standards in that rock. And that's the danger of the gospel. Because we are not claiming to have one experience of God between our ears. We are claiming that the God of Israel lives. And he has been working a plan of redemption that has resonated and reverberated through the centuries. And it is objective as the rock that he placed. That Jacob did come back to that rock. The promises did hold true. There was a temple. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Ezra. In fact, it's this thing us Christians like to call the scriptures. It is there to be evaluated. It is there to stand this test of time. It is there to say, my personal experience is not just in my head. It resonates with everything God said he was going to do. And the results of that experience in my life resonates with everything he has done in others. Therefore, this is a prophecy that will only be true or false. And after 2,000 plus years of history, it has proven true again and again and again. Because all of that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we never even talked about the dream, and we close with that. The dream. The dream. That dream should be ours. This dream is for you. A stairway to heaven. A stairway. The bottom of that stairway is a rock. The place where it's located is Bethel, which means house of God. Who was going up the stairs? Jacob? No man could go up those stairs. There are angels clothed in righteousness, they can go up those stairs. No man was going up those stairs. Jesus said that he was the rock. Psalm 118 says he's the cornerstone of a temple. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said he was the temple. He said he would dwell among us in his flesh. In John 1. No man was going up those stairs, but there was a man who came down the stairs, incarnated himself in the Lord, and the Jesus, who he saw at the top, was standing. Only to know later he would descend. And therefore, Ephesians says, when he ascended, when he rose from the dead, he led a train of hosts of his captives, and he took them to heaven with him. He brought them back up the stairs. This is the prophecy of old. It all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. All of these personal experiences, objective prophecies, even rocks over in the Middle East are pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist said even rocks could cry out and worship God. For all creation is pointing to this one fact. And it matches beautifully with all the promises of God. That yes, Jesus is the dream. He is the way. He is the stone. He is the temple, and we are living stones being built to him today. Dear Father, Lord, we pray that you would build us and fit us together into this temple. Lord, we thank you that you have risen, you have ascended, and in your train, you have brought many sons to glory. Lord, we could not go up those stairs. There are no stairs for us to climb. This is literally a dream. There is no stair to heaven that would support our sinful feet. But Lord, you have made a way in your body. That you have climbed those stairs for us and sat at the right hand of the Father. And from there, Lord, we are firmly confident that you live now forever to make intercession for your saints. And we, Lord, are them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.